Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and my special guest today is John Nance, who is a Stanford-educated, McKinsey-trained strategy consultant whose clients have included, now get this, Lyft, Johnson & Johnson, National Geographic, NASA Education, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. John was a named plaintiff in the U.S. Supreme Court case, California versus Texas, which challenged the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. He is the author of Rediscovering Republicanism, Renewing America with Our Founding Vision and Values. John, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Doug. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. So you're uh, talking to a libertarian audience, which, you know, if we get into your book, is going to feel very familiar to a lot of our audience. But the title of this podcast, as people are looking on their phones and saying, oh, what am I going to listen to, is going to say, Rediscovering Republicanism. My wife was actually watching me. Re- uh, we were sitting by the fireplace, and I was reading the book, and she looks over and she goes, are you going back to your roots? I'm like, no, 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 it's not that kind of Republicanism. Book titles have to be capitalized. So maybe you should... Uh, give a little bit of an idea of like, what is republicanism in your book here? Yeah, great question, Doug. So, you know, republicanism, I mean, it basically goes all the way back to ancient Greece. And I talk about this, you know, in the introduction of the book. And, you know, for those of people who don't know, the United States is really like one of the, basically the first modern republic. We are the first written constitution of the modern era. We have a pretty extensive, you know, bill of rights and rights for individuals. We have a representative democracy. And all of those are sort of key aspects of what it means to be to live in a republic. And so when I say rediscovering republicanism, what I mean by that is when you look at kind of the broader scope of history, there was something called American republicanism. We have a very specific version of it. And I kind of talk about that in the introduction of the book, what the major differences are. But I think, you know, a few things that your audience will be familiar with. We obviously elect people to handle the political work of our country. That's kind of the classic cornerstone feature of a republic. But we have all these kind of more distinctive things. We have states and then a federal government. We don't just have one government. We have governments within governments. We have, you know, individual rights that are actually quite strong, right? So we didn't give up all of our rights when we created the republic. And that's actually quite new. So that's kind of what I mean by rediscovering republicanism. It's basically rediscovering what it was American republicanism. And I think specifically, you know, what were the beliefs and values and ideals of the founding fathers when they created this republic? What made it different? What made it special? And how do we sort of rediscover that and apply it to today? So how did you come to cherish these values? Like what's your backstory in sort of appreciating these and really, you know, honing in on this as a resolution to some of our problems? Yeah. Kind of, I'll give you somewhat of an unusual answer to start. I took a bike trip across the country when I graduated from college from Boston to Santa Barbara. And I know it's, it's sort of weird to say, but I really fell in love with the country and Americans. And you get to meet a lot of people when you're on a bike and uh, it's very real. You know, you're rained on, hailed on, stormed on, mm. and you get to see sort of people in their reality of, of human beings. And it was shocking to me, quite frankly, just how nice and kind people were pretty much from coast to coast. And it just kind of made me realize I traveled in Europe, I traveled in Asia a bit as well. And um, 
you know, there's something different about Americans. And I think that kind of sparked something like, how oh, what's going on here? And, you know, like a lot of your listeners, and, and, I, and I know yourself, you know, I had read some American history books. I was somewhat familiar with our political system and what makes it different. But I said, I'd really like to go deeper and understand this at a much deeper level and take some of the skills that I have as a management consultant. You know, we work for like some of the companies you listed at the beginning. So kind of like really looking at it from an organizational perspective, from a principal's perspective and saying, okay, if I come at it from that angle, as opposed to like a classic historian, take a historical bent, but think about it from an organizational perspective, what's working, what's not, why, mm. what would that sort of un- uncover? So I think that's the sort of origins for the project was there was sort of a love sparked and then a curiosity. And then ultimately that motivated me to kind of take a few years off from my traditional career to write this book. Wow. So let's jump into the founding vision. It's part of the subtitle, the founding vision and values of our country. What are some of the ones that, I mean, we could go into all of them, but probably don't have enough time, but what were some of the characteristics of the founding vision? Yeah. You know, in the book, and like you said, Doug, I really like how you put that. It's complex. There was so much going on. And I think we have to recognize at some level, we're going to have to simplify, right? To really wrap our heads around it. I would say that being said, in the book, I talk about there are sort of three that I think were particularly important, I think, in terms of understanding the society and political system they wanted to put together. The first was the individual and, you know, from a political perspective, you know, individual rights and all the way back to the Declaration of Independence, which I think was probably the first, you know, true founding document. You know, we talk about to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. And so you get this sense that government is not right the starting point. It is the individual. And specifically, those individuals have rights. And we decide which of them do we want to give to the government, which do we want to keep for ourselves. So I think that was kind of thing number one, was that they didn't think politics was the end-all, be-all of life. They didn't think about people as you're a voting citizen, right? You're an individual that stands outside of politics. And the political system's here to serve us in our capacities as individuals. That was value number one, kind of design principle number one. The second one was the federal government wasn't going to have all the power. And I talk about this a lot in the first few chapters of the book. But, you know, for really the first two-thirds of our country's history, the state governments really were the center of domestic political life in the United States. And I think the key fact that I think is so interesting is when you look at where do we spend money, if you just look at that raw statistic, pretty much till the New Deal, 1932 to 1934, that was the first time where the federal government outside of war spent more money than the state governments. So there was this sense of, you know, you should have some say in terms of the government you have, Right. And we see that today. California is very different than Texas, very different than Pennsylvania. So we wanted to give people some choice. So I think the second key value was state governments were really important. They matter a lot. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The third one was civil society. And I think, quite frankly, Doug, I think this is the one we, it's arguably, which one have we lost the most ground on? I think this is the saddest of the three, which is, you know, when I look at our society today, It's almost like people have forgotten that we can solve problems ourselves. And there's this sense of let's have the federal government solve things. Let's have government solve things. And there's a lot of things we need to solve. There's a lot of things we need to work on. I think, you know, libertarians, conservatives, across the political spectrum, I think we can all agree on that. I think where you need to disagree is like, who should do that? What institutions? And the founding fathers, you know, if you look at Benjamin Franklin, the first library was a voluntary civil organization. 
fire departments. They weren't even taken over by local governments until the mid-1800s. So we used to protect our communities with voluntary firefighting departments, and they actually worked quite well. So there was this robust civil society, which is everything outside of, of government, that was tackling problems related to the public good. That was the third thing. And they expected that and they wanted that. The founding fathers did. And you can see that, you know, Tocqueville, one of the probably the most salient thing about the book he wrote in the 1830s about America was the robust nature of American civil society. So those are the three, I think, key founding values, individual, individual rights, federalism or empowered state governments, and then civil society. Those are kind of the three values. I think the three that we've really moved away from a lot in the last, particularly the last 90 years. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I would, if you were to ask me what my opinion of what have we lost first, the most, I almost wonder if I would say, number one, the individual Mm. and individual rights. I mean, maybe it just feels like that out of the last couple of years. And, you know, we're on the, hopefully the tail end of a pandemic where you have a lot of people, you know, sort of eschewing the idea that individuals can make a personal health choice and so forth. And so I, I feel like that's also really, really lost and there was a part in your book that had to do with how the, oh, here it is. I have it in your book right now here. The American founders wanted to establish a polity that would give first place to man's capacity as a tool-making animal, not a political animal, which you kind of referenced a little bit earlier. It's like they weren't made for politics. Politics was made for humans, for us to sort of flourish if there was going to be that. And so, no, I, I love what you say about number three. I'm not disputing you. I'm just like, you know, both of those things are pretty severe losses in my mind. And and honestly, I think the idea that people don't respect other individuals is partly why they feel like we need the federal government or governments or the state in some way to accomplish things that other individuals could band together and do, you know, in mutual aid societies, private fire companies and all of that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't even know. It's hard to say of which which of the three has lost more ground. And Doug, I know you were talking before this started that you know you obviously really engage with the book. You know, one thing I pick up on a lot of the conversations I've had around the book and in general, there, there is a little bit of a sense of like I don't want to say hopelessness. I think that's a little strong, but I think for people who subscribe to these values and ideas, there's a little bit of a sense of we're in a little bit of a dark age here. Mm. And you know, the last part of the book, you know, I do want to give people hope. And I really do think we can ground that hope in facts. And, you know, the last section of the book, I say, look, here are these three values. I think we all have, you know, a lot of folks in the United States, we support those sort of inherently, but there's also just practical reasons. And, you know, the contribution I was trying to make with this book is I'm saying, look, we've, we've tried this top-down federal government driven thing. And what I talk about in the middle section of the book is the results I mean, honestly, and I'm, I'm biased I and mean, I'm not a huge fan of the federal government inherently, although I was at a younger age. But if you just look at the facts and you say, where are the successes? You know, when I do consulting for companies, right, and we're figuring out what should they go do and not do, the first thing you say is, well, what have been past results, right? That is the best indicator of future performance is past performance in, in a lot of, in, at least outside the stock market. And the results aren't very good. Social Security and Medicare are headed towards insolvency. We have a higher poverty rate now than we did 50 years ago, which coincided with the federal government's entry into social welfare programs. And then you have these just almost laughable stories of we have private companies. I mean, literally, we have SpaceX is out innovating 
NASA, right? Despite literally tens of billions of dollars, right? A for-profit company is now going to basically probably get us to Mars. And so you just look at this and you say, guys, we need to take a step back. And this is not working. And we have these values that are much deeper in the blood of Americans than a big federal government. And how do we reapply them? And that's the last section of the book is showing that, you know, you really can reapply these values. And, you know, that's the last section of the book is trying to paint that picture of if we did have a rediscovered, you know, reemergence of that spirit of the founding of the country and we followed that out, you know, I think it's a really positive and uplifting and hopeful picture. And I think it's, I think it's doable. Yeah. Well, and as we get to that in our conversation, and also as you got to that in the book, the picture laid out in how were we founded, how was the founding vision and value sort of established as we move through then to today in the book, you paint a vision of like, oh, life was different in the post-Declaration of Independence world. Like it's a very different world than what we sort of imagine in our mind. And so you paint a picture to a large extent, like what does that look like? And then also sort of how did the progressive movement and how did the basically European ideas sort of infiltrate America at the mid to late 1800s, sort of following the Civil War. So I found it interesting and a good connection to make because I think a lot of times people like you and me who look at progressivism as like, okay, they're well-intentioned, but oh my goodness, it just, it has a very bad start and well, also a bad finish in middle too, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, Mm -hmm. but it didn't come from nowhere. It didn't just somehow suddenly arise in Woodrow Wilson, right? Like those ideas started somewhere. So I don't know if you want to sort of introduce that. And then, you know, of course we can tease, you know, listeners to go read your book. Yeah, no, totally. But I'm happy to share as much as possible. So we'll would love to have your listeners get a copy, but let's share as much as we can. I think that's one of the interesting things. And I know, Doug, you're a real student of this. You know, I was trying to make contributions with this book. I was trying to kind of advance the conversation and say something new. And I think it's a denser book. It's not a light read, but I think it's interesting. And there's a lot of new ground covered, even for people who are interested in this topic. I think they're going to find something new. And I think this is an example of that, which is, you know, I went back and I said, you know, well, where did this come from? Right. And I think you hear a lot of studied libertarians and conservatives, you know, say, oh, well, Woodrow Wilson and American progressivism. And then it's like, well, that's sort of begs the question, well, where did he get his ideas? And it's a very interesting story. And it's actually quite clear. It's not really debatable. And the bottom line is, I think Yale was the first PhD granting university in the United States in 1861. There's some debate around that. But the bottom line is pretty much through the beginning of the 20th century, most American academics went to Europe to get their training. And if you look at Woodrow Wilson in particular as an example of that, he had two teachers at the Johns Hopkins University, both of whom went to Germany to get their PhDs. They came back and they started the political science department. And those scholars, while they were in Europe, they were imbibing pretty statist ideas of Europe at that time. And you kind of had this really dark combination of, you know, on the left, kind of socialism, communism, Marxism. But then you also had kind of these authoritarian governments, right? And you had like people like Friedrich Hegel saying something like, you know, the state is the, you know, the march of God in the world. I mean, and I had a German scholar look at the text in German to verify that I was quoting that correctly. But, you know, things like that. And of course, the Prussian monarch loved that. 
So you had all these American scholars going abroad, getting educated, and reading about socialism, Marxism, communism, and then also statism from a more bureaucratic perspective. And you have Woodrow Wilson going getting his PhD, learning from these two folks who had literally imported libraries of German academics that basically formed the entirety of the you know library of the Johns Hopkins University. So you have people like Woodrow Wilson literally surrounded in libraries by exclusively statist books. And when you even look at his first papers that he wrote, the only scholars he cited were these German scholars like Blunchley, like Hegel. And he cites them actually by name in his writings. So I think it's a really important strand that people understand. It's kind of a sad one, which is we were trying to do something different here in the United States. And unfortunately, a lot of our intellectuals went to Europe in a somewhat blinkered way, imbibed these ideas that were oftentimes funded by state governments, and then came back and thought that they were quite interesting. And that really formed the intellectual kernel of American progressivism. I often wonder what made them find it so interesting. You know what I mean? Like, I know yeah. that like when you go over and you get ideas, you know, I went away to college and even graduate school and I'm like enamored with new ideas that I'd never heard of because, you know, where I grew up and the, you know, what I was introduced to and had exposure to was just not as expansive. And I think that's generally true of most people as they come of age and so forth. But I'm like, why are these ideals so enrapturing to you that you would want to embrace them such that you become the new thought leader in a different country that sort of espouses them in a way that, I mean, I guess they thought they were appealing to fellow Americans in an American sort of way, Mm. but I'm not exactly sure like why they felt that this was like a compelling new direction. Maybe they didn't think it was a new direction. Maybe they just thought it was sort of the next evolution in whatever America had next for itself. Yeah. I mean, that's a big question and a really interesting one. I, I guess I'd say kind of two things on that immediately kind of jumped to mind. You know, I think the first is, I do think the psychological explanation here is, is an important one. And I, I always pause before I get into that, this type of explanation, but I, I think it's so dead on the money. And, you know, there are other scholars who've written, you know, really like Thomas Sowell, I think has explored this most extensively and he's got some really good books on the topic about it. But I mean, you know, in a society where you know you're not letting the government force people to do things, you have to go persuade people, and you actually have to go do things. And I generally find you know intellectual people, particularly if they're in the academy, you know these are relatively ambitious people, but they're not doing things. They've sort of decided not to roll their sleeves up. They're not convincing people. They're not building organizations. They're just studying. But they see themselves as very talented, very smart when they are very smart, and they want to have an influence on our society. And I think from their perspective. Like government is just this, I don't even know what the right analogy is, but it's sort of like a panacea for them. Because it's like, oh, well, we get to write the policies. We get to run these programs. We get to study these programs. It gives us jobs. It gives us grants, right? (laughs) In a way that like, you know, a church or a business or a local philanthropy like is not going to necessarily do in the same way. So I do think there's something inherently appealing about statism, particularly for academics, and I think the psychological question, I think is really big. And I think it's definitely yeah. true now. I think it was true then. And then I think the second thing was, you know, there were problems in the United States as there are now and as there, you know, probably will be for the indefinite future because that's kind of the human condition. And we hadn't tried a big government. So I think they had this kind of childlike sense of, well, if we try this, it'll solve all of our problems, like kind of that utopianism mm-hmm. thing. You know, so I think there were, like you said at the beginning, I think some good intentions 
I think naive, and I think as I talk about and I think show in the book, demonstrably false. Hi, this is Carrie Baldwin. And if you like the Libertarian Christian podcast, you'll like our other podcast, Good News, Bad News, a roundtable where you can join me, Matt, Norman, Doug, Aaron, and others analyze the news from a Libertarian Christian perspective. Check us out on YouTube, your favorite podcast app, or on libertarianchristians.com slash roundtable. You know, third thing that I, as you're talking and I'm thinking of another thing, it's like you've gotten, what, 35 years plus from the Civil War. And that was, you know, in their minds, probably a good battle against an evil called slavery. Mm -hmm. We also have the fight against King George, right? That was well into the past. And so while the federal government was doing things, it didn't seem like it was this sort of dragon-like threat at the door. You know, there wasn't just this threat at the door of the federal government just totally overreaching like the way we see today. It already is. I mean, it's inside the castle walls, so to speak, if I can make weird my metaphors. But like, it was a little bit of a distant memory that the federal government was something to fear. Not federal government, but a large concentrated government was something to fear. So like maybe it was innocent enough to be like, well, that's behind us now. We can make the government work for our good. And what's the biggest one that we can find? Well, it's the federal government in the U.S. (laughs) So I don't know. I mean, I like to think well of people and I actually don't think they meant ill on on most of us, but um, they certainly started something that was not conducive to flourishing over the long run. One thing that I thought was good to read about was the term liberal. And I have always, I'm going to say always, I have recently in like, I don't know, past five years, refused to let the left have the term liberal. Now, obviously, I can't refuse to let them have it. I just sort of make a point to be like, well, they're not liberals because they're not liberal. They are definitely either authoritarian or they're statist or they're they're not liberal in that sort of classical way. But somehow the definition around 100 years ago or so changed from what liberal meant to what it kind of means today. So I don't know if you want to expound on that a little bit because I think that's really important because I think the way we use terms actually can matter in a significant way. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, it's kind of one of those interesting stories and you know, just to kind of give it a little bit of context in the book, I kind of, you know, the question I'm trying to answer is, you know, how did we change from, and I will answer your question, Doug, but if you don't mind me doing a, a slight tangent here to kind of expand the scope. Yeah, no problem. How did we get from the founding period to the New Deal? And like, that is just a massive shift. And I basically say there were kind of three ingredients. There was basically the Civil War, there was these European ideas, which we talked about before, and then there was kind of this American progressivism and populism. So what we're talking about is kind of these European ideas that came to the United States largely via these academics. So the key person here, and it's funny because he doesn't get a lot of credit. You hear a lot about Isaiah Berlin, who kind of made this distinction between positive and negative liberty. And that's fine. I've read that essay. I think it's well-written, but it's really inaccurate to give him really any credit for the intellectual point. I mean, I don't know why people do that. It's not accurate. The guy who actually did this, with his name was Thomas Hill Green, and he was a, I think, quite obviously brilliant political philosopher in the late 19th century, I believe at Oxford, if I recall correctly. And um, he really is the guy who noticed 
that, you know, at that time in England, the Liberal Party was really what we would call, you know, classical liberalism or even libertarianism. It you know, was probably not too far off. At that time, you just called it a liberal, a person who believed in individual rights and smaller government, lower taxes, free trade, that type of thing. And he noticed a few things, which is one, he noticed that in England, there were the beginnings of a kind of a regulatory regime that he thought was actually quite salutary, like rules about how long you can work. And it's called the Factory Acts. It was this long list of regulations that had been promulgated in, in the United Kingdom starting in the, I want to say, 1820s. So he made an observation that, well, we have these rules that kind of tell you what you can and can't do that seem to be good. And there's all these problems in the country that maybe the government could help. And as a personal story for him, you know, one of his brothers, unfortunately, was an alcoholic. And so he was um, thought there could be some real value in, in a prohibition approach. So he did some really interesting intellectual thinking and basically said, I think we need to rebrand liberalism. And basically the big shift was that it's not about what the state can't do. It's what the individual can do either on their own or with the help of the state. So he basically reinterpreted, this is by the way, is the now like globally, when you say liberal, he's the one who really came up with a new definition, which is when I'm a liberal, I want people to have certain things. I want them to have healthcare. I want them to be able to, you know, thrive in their individual life, right? That's what the belief is. He's the one who kind of came up with that definition and moved it away from the classically liberal definition, which is why we use that word classical, to the modern. And I know, Doug, you're fighting to try to take the word back. And the reason we have to have that fight is because I think Thomas Hill Green did a, did a really good job of um, redefining the term and inserting that term into politics. So we've had the progressive movement from at least 100 years ago, if not, I guess, 120 years now. I I think my brain is still stuck in the year 2000 in broad strokes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're well past 100 years only. So we have the progressive movement in there. And I don't think it's a new story. So probably don't have to dive into it too much here that the New Deal and you know what followed after World War II really ushered in, in some ways, a new era where progressives got not everything, but a lot of what they were aiming for in terms of like, hey, new programs that benefit public welfare that, you know, abolish poverty. And, you know, a lot of those things were already in decline. So in some ways, it's like they ran out in front of a parade and said, hey, look, you know, they're following me. But there were some terms that you use that I think are I don't know if you're going for catchy, and maybe these are just the first times I've ever heard of them, but you use two terms. I just want to kind of go over them a little bit. One is called windfall politics, and mm -hmm. the other is called a government surcharge. Sure. Maybe we'll start with the government surcharge for now, and I think our listeners will be happy to hear your description of what that even means. Totally, totally, totally. I appreciate you highlighting the terms, and, and um, like I said earlier on, you know, when I was writing this book, I was like, you know, I want to really try to say something new. I really didn't want to rehash, you know, a bunch of other people's books. So I, I really did try to do a lot of really deep primary research and thinking. And the two terms that you just said are kind of the terms that I kind of came up with when I said, let me just step back. I've looked at all this data. How do we sort of in a very simple way explain what's going on here? And well, let's take them one at a time. So one is called the government surcharge. And it's one of the names of the chapter of the book. What I basically point out, and I honestly have, I've talked to a number of people about this. I have, I have yet to hear an exception to this. So this is akin to supply and demand. I mean, it is, a, it seems to be a very strong feature of government. And the basic definition of it is 
is that when you compare government to private institutions for the same service at the same level of quality, you will always get a higher price. Or said other ways, if you get the same service from the government at the same quality, it will cost more money versus a private organization, either for-profit or non-profit. So we call that a government surcharge, You know, surcharge meaning kind of a, a premium charge for something. So we're basically paying a premium for the government to run things. And, I, and I'll give your listeners a, a really good example. If you look at, you know, just a, a fact point, you look at the mail, and I'm imagining your listeners have heard, the United States Postal Service has lost billions of dollars, basically a year for literally, I think, I think we're going on two decades now. That's on top of the tens of billions of dollars they have in unfulfilled, like retirement obligations that they have no money to pay, okay? So you look at that and say, okay, well, that's interesting. Is there just something inherently money losing about the mail? And the answer is no. And the easy thing you can look at is you look at the Dutch Post, which is the German post office. It was privatized in the year 2000. They have made a billion dollars of profit every year since they were privatized. So there's nothing inherently money losing about a postal service. There's something inherently money losing about a government-run postal service. And so then you start to say, well, why is that? And again, I come at this from a management consulting perspective. And you say, well, let's, let's look under the hood. And the second you start looking under the hood and you start doing a little bit of research, it is not hard to explain. So if you look at the Dutch Post, one of the first things they did is they said, you know, we don't need a building, right? I mean, if you go to the post office, some of these post offices, there are these massive buildings and then you go up and they sell you a stamp, right? I mean, that's crazy. I mean, the German post office figured that out. So 97% of their transactions are done at gas stations, at convenience stores, right? I mean, or a machine where you just buy stamps. I mean, it's not a complicated transaction. And you compare that to the United States, right? And we still have these massive postal buildings where literally, I mean, most of the transactions are like, I'm going to spend $5 buying stamps. I mean, it makes no sense. And then you say, okay, so that's the operational explanation. Why is that? The reason for that is that the postal employees, unlike everybody else in our society, they actually get a say in who their boss is. These are very powerful unions. I mean, if you look at government employee unions, right? I mean, Doug, I know you care about how the good government is, I care, but we probably care less than someone employed by the government, right? They care a lot. Mm. So those guys, and there's about a million of them, are highly organized, highly unionized. And you know, you can imagine that they extract promises from people that they get support from. You're not going to change things. You're not going to put in machines for you're going to let me continue to sell stamps because I don't want to change. Most people don't like to change. So you know, you do that for decades and decades and decades, and you get an institution that's just very, very inefficient and doing something that any private organization would not even conceive of doing. And that's what I mean by the government surcharge is you kind of have an inherently inefficient way to do things, which you can explain by the fact that the people doing the work have a lot of say in who their bosses are. And that creates dysfunction. So talk about windfall politics then. Windfall politics... You know, the thing that really strikes me, and, and this is actually really interesting because if you look across the globe, these are not necessarily just American problems. Let's just take Social Security and Medicare. And really, you can look at any social welfare program we have. They're pretty much all insolvent, meaning they do not have the funds and are not forecasted to have the resources to pay for the obligations that they are telling people they're going to do. So take Social Security, for example. Most people below the age of 55 don't think that they're going to get the social security benefits they've been promised. And they almost for sure will not, right? So that's sort of your everyday American intuition about this, which is we all kind of intuitively know 
these programs are not financially well-managed. And that is true. Most Americans, that's accurate. And I don't know, it moves around, but I want to say social security, I think it's supposed to go insolvent, like 2033 or something like that. Yeah. Okay. So the question then becomes, how did that happen? And this honestly is one of my own, my personal favorite parts of the book. I learned a ton as I was researching this. It was really, um, there was a lot of surprises in it. And what's so interesting is, and I, you have to give Franklin Delano Roosevelt a lot of credit, which is hard for me to do, but I, I think you do need to give credit where credit's due. When they were creating Social Security, he was actually in very strong that he wanted the program to be financially sound over the long run. And he really deserves a lot of credit for that. And I think single-handedly made the original Social Security program legitimately quite solvent in the long run. So I think credit to him for taking that stand. So when Social Security was created in 1935, it was pretty much solvent, you know, up to 1980 and beyond. Then, so what happened is, if you take Social Security as an example, we have the payroll tax institute. So all this money is being saved because, you know, we're telling all these older people and working people, we're going to pay you in the future. And these politicians are like, well, we have all this money. I want to spend it, right? I can give more people benefits. I can give the people who are getting benefits more benefits. I can lower taxes. And you have these, I mean, honestly, kind of hilarious, like hilarious, but also sad debates between people on the Hill in the Congress and the Senate, you know, having conversations with people who have insurance knowledge and asking, oh, well, could we spend, basically, can we spend more money? Can we lower the tax rates? And the actuaries were literally like, no, you shouldn't do that because if you do that, the program will be insolvent. And you just get these really fun. And I was reading these transcripts and I was blown away by the candor of these elected people where they were basically saying, there's this quote in the book where he says, oh, well, you know, I'm trying to remember what the actual quote was. He basically says, well, you know, if, it, if it's 20 years, if it's not good in 20 years, you know, well, let's just worry about today. Basically, that's a problem. It's like when people, I think there was a sitcom. It's like, that's a problem for future Doug or future John. Like, it's not a problem for me right now in the present. That's a problem for someone else in the future. Totally, totally. And so we create this program. We turn it over over to the politicians who are going to be reelected in two, four, or six years, depending on their role. And they did not want to manage these programs in an actuarially sound and responsible way. And what I basically point out in the book is literally almost every single bill, if you look at Social Security that was passed after 1935, made the program more and more insolvent. And there was literally no exception to that until 1983. Basically, every single bill, and there were tens of them, this is not two bills, they almost passed a bill every single year, would expand the number of beneficiaries, increase benefits, or postpone the tax rate, all of which increase costs and reduce, right, reduce the savings of the program. So it pushes it towards insolvency. So when I say windfall politics, you know, what I'm trying to say is we're giving the political class control of these social insurance programs, and we know exactly what they're going to do, which is they're going to mismanage them because these politicians are going to be reelected in two years. They're not going to be around in 30 years, right? I mean, these programs are going to go unsolved in 2033. No one in 1960, no one will even be alive who is in Congress passing these bills, they're all gone. So there's no accountability, right? And now we're stuck with it. And um, I do think there's something powerful about trying to simplify things for people. And so I said, look, at the end of the day, this is windfall politics, which is giving people unearned benefits for political benefits of the political class. And so instead of telling the American people the truth and treating them like adults, right, which is what we elect these people to do, 
they really treated us like like kids, like children, and said, "Hey, here's a treat. Don't worry about the future. Here's a treat. Don't worry about the future." Yeah. Right. Yep. And if you do that long enough, right, it doesn't get you to a good situation. And that's really Shiny Penny syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Totally. <laughs> well. I don't want to end on a depressing note. So what is your game plan for winning back these values to the American people? Obviously, it starts with, you know, everybody who hears what you have to say and and is able to influence other people. But like, what are some ways in which we can sort of turn the boat around, so to speak? Yeah, totally. Here's how I would frame it. And this is coming from, I mean, you can imagine Doug having had a lot of these conversations. I think the way that people who agree with a lot of our values lose is we disregard the problem. We disregard the concern. So someone says, hey, I'm really concerned about people who have less resources. I'm concerned about poor people. I'm concerned about the elderly. And I think, you know, one reaction you get from you know, libertarian and conservatives is, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you start disregarding the problem. My recommendation is we can agree with some of these problems. You say, yep, that's something we need to work on in society. We need to take care of our most vulnerable people, right? But let's take a look at, we got to start debating, how are we going to do that? And if you look at the facts, and that's what my book does, you'd say this doesn't work. We need to come up with something new. We tried it for 90 years or 100 years, whatever you want to call it. We have a bunch of results in, and they're not very good. Okay. And if you keep doing this, we kind of know how this ends. So acknowledge the problem, point out ideally with facts that, hey, this doesn't seem to be working well. I agree with you on the problem, and it doesn't seem to be working well. I think there's a better way. And I think that better way is going back to the values we all hold dear as Americans and actually reapplying them. And I do that in the last section of the book, and we won't get too into that because I know we don't want to keep your listeners listening for too long here. But in the last section of the book, I take those values that we talked about at the beginning and show how we can reapply them. You know, take Social Security. It's like, let's let Americans take care of themselves. I mean, we're taking 15% of people's paychecks to participate in programs that are insolvent. And what I say in the book is, you know, we can let people keep a share, a portion of what they have taken away from them to take care of themselves, which most Americans can do. And then at the same time, let's have a program dedicated to taking care of the most vulnerable people. That feels like an American way to do this. And that feels like a huge improvement over how we're doing it. And so, you know, I guess the last point would be, you know, these values that we're talking about, they're not in the past. They're in the future. And I think we need to be making an argument for them. I think we need to be making an argument for them based on policy and practical politics. And I think, I honestly think that's an argument we can win. Well, I, I hope you're right. I am probably somewhat skeptical and not, not in the sense that I don't agree with you. <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe I'm just like battle weary over the last couple of years of, you know, people fighting against things that are worth valuing. But, um, I really hope you're right that we can win and that over the long run, you have people embracing these values in ways that affect them personally, but that also affect how they vote, how they communicate with others and so forth. So, you know, your book, which I'll repeat for our listeners, Rediscovering Republicanism, Renewing America with Our Founding Vision and Values. John Nance has been my guest. John, thanks for joining us. Doug, thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. 
If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.